Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Here's Marty Scorsese. Is that me? Hi, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, would you explain what it took for you to get out of the editing room and over here today? Oh, look what I've done. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's just... Uh, it's, uh, what I, I, um, How did you get out for the two hours that you have? Um, well, I, I was extricated from the machine. It's this giant board of... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what it is. It's, it's that we... I go back 20-some-odd, uh, 25 years, but just really sound. I was getting older, so it's like... Uh, um, mono, Taxi Driver, and Mean Streets were both done, and Alice is Living Anymore. All three were done in five days. But now with um, uh, you're mixing sound now. Yeah, mixing sound. The final. Well, actually, we finished the mix. I'm just doing some touch-ups uh -huh. today only, one day only. Well, we were told <laughs> anyway <laughs> to finish up today. So it would happen that um, just technically that it would fall on this day. You know, I'll go back and uh, just finish up a few more things, some different piece of mix and music and that sort of stuff. And, um, but it's this extraordinary, extraordinarily complicated uh, computer board. Huh. Yeah. You know, everything um, says, I don't understand it. Um, so I said, why can't I just hear that thing? Well, we have to go fine, you know. Yeah. All right, we take a nap. <laughs> get up. No, they're great. It's sound one. Tom Fleischman, he's the best. <laughs> His mother is Dee Dee Allen. Oh. Great ever, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't have anything to do with this film, and I'm really nervous about the opening of it, so... I, it's, <laughs> you know? That's a good way of putting it. I, I, uh, I guess it's like beyond nervous. You just don't know. I mean, you just... The best thing to do is just uh, do the best you can today and tonight. Just do those last touches. I was looking at answer printing again today. Um, it's Super 35, so it's a little complicated. We have to go to it's a thing where you go to a a dupe squeeze negative, that becomes your real negative, and that means this week I've got to check a few of the prints off that dupe negative, and it's, uh, you know, and I've got these other documentaries to do, and that sort of stuff, so I'm trying to sl slip myself off of it, and I guess working it so hard that, um, you know, now they tell me they're going to release it, so that's <laughs> like, really people want to see this thing, so you, Mario was saying so backstage it'd be nice if you could keep showing the 20 minute reel. Yeah, just keep showing the 20 minutes. <laughs> It's almost business as usual for you to have uh, advance, a lot of advance talk about certain films. You, with Last Temptation of Christ, there was a lot of that. With New yeah. York, New York. With yeah. Age of Innocence, there was a yeah. lot of fuss about the fact that you'd hired uh, a consultant to tell, to tell you how the dishes ought to go. Yeah. How exponentially different is the attention to this film? I'm trying to think. In, in Age of Innocence, there was, there was a, lot of, uh, a lot of anticipation. There was no doubt. But I think... Uh, in Temptation of Christ, it was a sort of different situation where it became so notorious uh, based on the fact that some people had some old scripts out in the street reading these old scripts. I have no idea. And so by the time we, by the time we um, were in the mixing room, we decided to release the film four to five weeks before its original release date. And so 
But here it's different. I think here everybody's sort of been waiting for this one uh, in terms of like for years. I always talked about it too, gangs in New York. And uh, you've been talking about it for thirty years. Thirty right? years, yeah. I mean, this period. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of the things take a long time. <laughs> Last Temptation was fifteen years. Uh, mean Streets was like my whole life up to that point. Can you, you know? explain why it's taken thirty years to do this? Having read the Herbert Asbury book, The Gangs in New York, uh, back in nineteen seventy, um, it's kind of a uh, uh, non-fiction book. It is a non-fiction book, but it also takes in the mythology of New York. It goes back to a time of uh, uh, extraordinarily, uh, uh, extraordinarily flamboyant folk tales of New York. It goes from about the 18th century and then up to the 1920s. Uh, he wrote the book in 26. And so... Um, and you read it when you were in your 20s, you were staying at somebody's yeah, house? Yeah, somebody's house actually was a friend of mine who was um, house-sitting for uh, somebody on, out in Long Island. It was New Year's Eve night and then day. And then in the daytime, it was snowing outside and we were just by a fire, and I found all these books, and I just saw this one said Gangs of New York, and took it out and started reading. They were reading time and again. Mm. <laughs> Jack, that book had just been published, but I was reading that one, and when I told that to Harvey, he said, that tells the whole story. That's <laughs> 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 Harvey Weinstein. Um, Maybe you've heard of him. You may have heard of him. <laughs> um, but many of it, no, because hey, here's another one. He had heard me telling the stories for years, and it's really about an old New York, and that's one of the problems. One of the problems was that um, none of the old New York exists. And we had... And so you had to build it. We had to build it, yes. it, yeah. That was a big thing. We had to build it. it when is, you uh, first thought of doing this all that time ago, you weren't in a position to build New York City. No. Um, so did you imagine a smaller version of... of no, bigger. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> even bigger, even bigger. Um, but also the fact that, too, that I, I couldn't quite... I wanted to tell so much of the, uh, so much of the uh, story of the old New York, you know, really just... Uh, uh, I didn't know where to stop it. You know? So you really never thought about camouflaging existing? There's no way. I think it would be more, more, yeah. more financially uh, not feasible to camouflage New York the way it is now. So years go by, you build New York in Rome. You've reshot some of it and you've changed the music to make it... To no, no, we're just really completing the music. I do a lot with source music. Uh -huh. you know. Did you reshoot the ending? Not really. I shot some close-ups, which is what I did on uh, Cape Fear and uh, uh, not an Age of Innocence, but uh, Casino. Casino, we reshot or shot reshot one scene and shot another scene for a, to to compress time. Um, usually in the editing, I find that at a certain point in time, I'll be able to tell uh, if I need some connective tissue, so to speak, you know, and one more little plot device to carry through. And eight on, on after hours, I wound up shooting four days to combine a lot of story uh, points that were. Um, uh, well, the original cut was two and a half hours, after hours. And the whole idea was, was like a Chinese box, you know, Chinese, uh, uh, you'd open it up and uh, like a trick box where you just keep opening, there's another box, there's another box, another box. And eventually we decided we had to maybe uh, compress about 10 or 12 of those boxes by shooting a new scene mm -hmm. and shooting some other elements <laughs> and combined it all. And uh, so we reshot four days and, and also a different ending actually in that. With this film, it's not out yet. I haven't seen it. Nobody much has seen it, but I can tell you already what um, one of this year's Oscar campaigns is going to boil down to. It's going to be, you mean Marty never won? Oh, well. Um, he never won. Uh, you, you've That's been okay. on the record as saying that that actually bothers you, that, that the Oscar is uh, an old-fashioned, traditional thing, part of the old Hollywood. It's wanting to be, I guess, sometimes it bothers me, and other times I say, what am I talking about? I made the movies. I got to make the pictures, and they were even some of them up there 
recognized that time of the year, which is amazing. And, and uh, also I realized that, that the pictures were kind of... But you've had very bad luck with them. In New York, New York didn't even get nominated as best song. That's the kind they of... They didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> you, you've been... The you've Omen lost... won that year. The Omen for best song, okay? <laughs> Just want to say that, guys, all right? <laughs> Let, need we say more? Great song, by the way, The Omen. Great music, by the way. I thought about, I, I am an Omen freak. I love watching those three. Mm. Omen 1, Omen 2, Omen 3. I love it. But <laughs> I'm telling you, New York, New York, Candor and Ebb, and The Omen. I... Anytime you want to know all about the Oscars, all you need to know is that this man lost to Kevin Costner. Oh, for directing, for directing on dances with wolves, yeah, and the picture. Well, the picture I can, I can understand because, I mean... <sighs> <laughs> No, the thing is that it's like, you know, the Academy is, is an institution, it's an organization, it's, well, not, no, it's an institution. And I think, um, as one, uh, one of the key figures of it at one point told me, he said, we vote the way, we vote for the film that should win. Meaning, at times, they may not necessarily look at the art of the craft, but at the, it's happened with Mrs. Miniver over the years, and William Wyler's a great director, but I prefer some of his other pictures. Uh, How Green Is My Valley, and John Ford's a great director, but over Citizen Kane. Well, you can argue that, I, I would think, classical, as opposed to a new style completely, but, you know... Uh, well, Orson Welles didn't have Miramax campaigning for him. I um. guess not, I guess not. Oh, Harvey and the guys, they're, they're going out there beating the drums, I guess. But the thing about it, too, is that what I realized was that uh, I... Oh, they're uh, outside right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I quite, you have to sort of get philosophical about it, because I thought, um, I got to make these pictures, and the pictures were pretty tough. I mean, uh, Taxi Driver was a, very, uh, was a labor of love. I didn't even think anybody was going to go see it. Um, uh, and it turned out that it became uh, very popular. And uh, um, has anyone seen Travis Bickle's mohawk in the exhibit upstairs? Dick Smith's. Um, Honestly, if you go upstairs, the, the mohawk wig is under glass. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reason he had to do it as a wig, he couldn't cut his hair because we were shooting so fast. Because he had to go on to do the last tycoon, and so we had to make a wig. And Dick Smith was the one who did it. Um, then on on um, Goodfellas, also was an, an edgy film. I mean, in a sense, so. You know, I, I don't think, I think they were kind of nasty, in a way, the pictures. And I think it was amazing we got away making them under the systems, under the system at the studio, uh, under the MPAA, all of that. And so I, I sort of took what we could get and ran, and that was to make the movies. And after a while, you realize, well, you know, that's all gone. And Raging Bull was another one, which was, the, it's not the violence language, I guess, in the picture. But uh, again, I didn't think, I thought it was, uh, when I made that, I thought this was it. I put everything I kind of knew into pictures, and then I was going to start on something new. I, I thought I was going to go off and do documentaries in Rome for Rye TV. I really, it wasn't, it wasn't even, was, I was looking forward to it also. <laughs> church, uh, religious stories, and that sort of thing. And, uh, mm. well, because of, of Rye Television at the time, Rossellini had done films, but also, also Olmi was doing a lot, and Bertolucci had done a few. And I thought that was the way to go, uh, for me anyway. And, um, well, this one, uh, I mean, the part I've seen looks fabulous, but it's no day at the beach, I don't think. The uh, gangs? Yeah. No, it is no day at the uh, beach. No. It's, However, very, it's a very violent <laughs> story. There's a lot of... Yeah, the uh, violence, though, is like, I mean, the thing is, I you know, kept saying, oh, Marty, this is violence. And yeah, I said, how do you shoot it then? I said, well, maybe, I think we talked about this once, where the idea was, I mean, uh, Mean Streets is rough, and then Taxi Driver certainly has a lot of violence at the end, and uh, Raging Bull is violence, but it's, the, it's more the emotional violence, which comes by way of, uh, you know, being fed, nurtured on the films of Sam Fuller and how he was expressing emotional violence with camera movement and editing. And, uh, but this uh, is full of violence about different uh, groups 
jockeying for position in other. New York. Yes. Do you have the hitting? Do you a have the 1863 hitting. draft riots? In the yes, we do towards the end. The, the draft riots are the backdrop. They will love it in the academy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah. yeah. But the draft riots are the backdrop of it. And the reality is, um, the violence is handled in such a way that I had to sort of say, well, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned this before, where, where I said when I got to do Casino, and it got to the point where Joe Pesci and his brother were killed with baseball bats in a, in a cornfield. I mean, it's, I did it very straight. And it was like the last statement I think I could make on that kind of violence and the violence of what it is, and especially these two guys, whether you like them or not, uh, uh, as charming as they could be, they were pretty bad gangsters, but being killed in such a brutal way with, by their friends, by their friends. This is the end of the lifestyle. It's the end of the rainbow, guys. So um, that was the last statement for me on that kind of thing. And after that, violence has to be treated a different way. And therefore, I was th what I tried to do in this picture is, through the editing, suggest the impact rather than see it. So it's really more montage than direct violence. Is it partly a, a, a result of um, the stage of life you're at, the fact that when you made a lot of young man's films that were, that were very violent and, and that were about outsiders wanting to belong and about uh, feelings that you might not have anymore since you... Uh, no, I still have outsider wanting to belong. Uh, some outsider. No, I no, just no, no, no. <laughs> there's a psychological thing. That it, but like, then you realize, why do you want to belong? Just do your thing and that's all. The hell with it. Now you got, you, you know... <laughs> Oh, really, I mean, that's part of the thing with the Academy, too, to a certain extent. If I say, if I was on record saying yes, uh, I think we talked about it at that time yeah. uh, in that interview years ago. And I said, yeah, 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 to a certain extent. Uh, but, um, you know, and then you think back, it's like, um, uh, it's like being an outsider and, and just dealing with that. I, there's a part of me, having grown up seeing those Academy Awards on TV, that uh, there's a certain kind of uh, acceptance, you know, that you, so your parents react to and that sort of thing. But... Uh, it ain't in the cards, and the main thing was to, uh, it, whatever happens in the future, the important period was the past, for me, in my head, in those 70s in a way, to the early 80s, so, for, or even beginning 90s, so for me, if you don't do it with that, forget it. I mean, what's the, the main thing to do is to just get the films made and to try to combine the kind of film I want to make with what I hope could be interesting at the box office. You know? I promise you this is the last question about this. Okay. But is it true that you are superstitious and you will not touch another director's Oscar? No, I never thought of that. Now I won't. <laughs> I read that somewhere. <laughs> now I'm not going to go touch anybody's house. Well, wait a minute, I've given them out. I went to Oliver and somebody else. Oh, God. Yeah. You had Oliver uh, Stone and Spike Lee as film students at NYU. Not Spike. Oliver uh -huh. and uh, Jonathan Kaplan, who directed The Accused and a number of films. Well, what kind of film student was Oliver Stone? Oliver was really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Oliver had just come out of the Army, I think. And uh, it was 1970 or 1969, 1970, and I was just an instructor. And it was a small um, uh, class. It was right before School of the Arts was formed, or maybe right at the time School of the Arts was formed, 65, 66. But I was an instructor under Hague Mnuchin. And I was just doing this little class where you'd take a 16-millimeter uh, film camera and you'd tell the kids, you know, well, this is it. Now you've got to load it. Now you've got to go out. This is overexposure. It's underexposure. <laughs> still, things I still can't do. <laughs> I don't get it, you know. <laughs> I know somehow it's a chemical process and there's light, but that's about it. <laughs> but seriously, it's like being in New York or being in rooms, too many rooms like this, that's what, you know. But um, uh, with Oliver and all these other kids, everybody was up there and talking, moving, and uh, everybody making films. And of course, it was a very political period, too. And there was a lot of uh, demonstrating at the school and that sort of thing. But Oliver was very, very quiet, very quiet, never said a word. And they insisted on a grading system. You had to grade. Uh, but I remember Gary Crowdus, too, was the cineast publisher, uh, the editor-in-chief cineast. He was in the class. There were a lot of interesting kids, and they were, 
Did Oliver, Oliver feel there was any conspiracy about the grades that you have given? No, because, because when I looked at his film, he did this little three-minute film, and I looked at it, it was about this, um, uh, it was about this soldier who came, comes back home, and uh, it's just no, no dialogue, uh, just some music was silent, black and white. And he had his, uh, he's in a hotel room, small hotel room, and he's pacing up and down like, a, like an animal outside the hotel room, like a, uh, a little terrace. Uh, you can see he's troubled, and he has, he has a little uh, duffel bag, and he walks up and down the street, and he finally, um, uh, he, takes his, he, he dresses, he changes his uniform, as I remember, into street clothes, and, but he takes his, um, uh, some of his army paraphernalia, and particularly his honorable discharge, puts it in the, it's a uh, framed honorable discharge, puts it in his duffel bag, and you take and you follow him, and he gets on the ferry, and in the midst of the water, mm. throws the bag away. Mm. And then it cuts to, in color, all these the birds taking off. And the music swells. I thought, well, that's an A, I thought. But that was good, yeah. Mm. It was really good, I thought. And uh, some of the other kids were just basically finding out what to do with the camera. But I would come in and talk about movies what, I had what seen. What year is this? 70, I think, or 69 and 70, the semester of 70, 69 and 70. And I would come in usually in that class uh, and instead of going into the instructions right away about uh, the basic exercise, I would talk about a film I had seen that week. Or uh, I was you had started to make your own films at that point. Uh, short films, yeah, short NYU, ones. and then The Big Shave. I made yeah. that uh, in '67, and so that got some. Uh, I was at New York Film Festival, and, mm. and that great uh, festival, Canoc Le Zouk, You know that one? <laughs> that was <laughs> in Belgium. <laughs> every four years, every four years, they had this great, great festival of mm. uh, sort of what they call underground films at the time. But in that year. It was shown there, but I, I couldn't have the money to go. But uh, uh, the, the main prize winner was Michael Snow's Wavelength. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Great stuff. If you were trying to make the same films, the same kinds of films that you did early in your career, Who's That Knocking at My Door, Boxcar Bertha, and then Breaking Through with Mean Streets, if you were doing that now, what would happen to that work, do you think? Was it a very different atmosphere, or would it, you think it would still find well, an audience? It, it certainly, it's even more of a chance of finding an audience now. However, I, don't, I also don't think I would, I've been so, I was so impatient, so ambitious, and such a pain in the neck to everybody. You know, uh, just me, 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 I'm making these movies, and I, that, that's, you know. Oh, it's just murder. In the middle of the night, I think, oh my God, I said that, you know. Oh, well, all right, you're young, you know. Okay, so <laughs> you go. <laughs> Even now, a few times, just, oh, don't say that again. Uh, but uh, but uh, I, it's true, though. Uh, I would have had the, I'm totally impatient, uh, can't get film, uh, video. I'd go to video, and, uh, you know, and I'd get this sort of thing. I, I don't, it's kind of an odd thing. It's almost like um, the kind of films that are being made now independently, because there would no doubt I'd be an independent market. I'd go right into the independent, mm -hmm. independent market. But in a funny way, there's no way that, uh, I don't know what I would have done new um, and what's being done. It seems like a lot of the independent films in the past 10 or 15 years are based on a lot of things that were being done in the 70s, the early 70s. Or when you were a very small group, really. Yes. Yeah, and and yeah. now it's, it's, it's enormous. But yeah. you and uh, Brian De Palma and Steven oh, Spielberg, Brian, yeah. you all were buddies back yeah, then. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. De Palma, Schrader, and uh, Spielberg, and uh, John Milius, and yeah. George Lucas. But it Lucas. was a really short list. You guys saw each other yeah. all, all the time. All the time, and argued, laughed, and you know, all kinds of stuff. I'm going to make this kind of film. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do that. Well, yeah, that sounds great. What if you do this? Yes. And I, you know, it was really, it was like up until the late 70s, it was really good. And then, and then things, uh, we got a little older and, you know, we'd show each other rough cuts and work on the rough cuts. Um, Spielberg came in my editing room one day, was cutting, I had three editors on, uh, two, two editors actually on uh, Taxi Driver. 
uh, Marsha Lucas and uh, Tom Rolfe, and they were working. But there was one cut I couldn't make. I was doing something with somebody. He came in and said, try that. Thing. It worked. <laughs> De Palma helped me, and Jay Cox helped me cutting Mean Streets a little bit. They would come in and, you know, look at a reel for me and say, try this here, and, you know, that sort How of stuff. How does it feel to have dueling DiCaprio films with oh, Spielberg? That's just, it's just my luck. You know, it's, that's what it is. It's just a... <laughs> Academy, yeah, he's got the one where I mean, he's 20 pounds lighter and has no beard and, and ah, but and the <laughs> but the weight is muscle. The weight is muscle. He he was <laughs> he was built up and he really had to uh, he had to work out every day. There's a there's a there's a number of people that were working with him and um, uh, Daniel worked out every day too. Daniel Day Lewis. Well, oh, you uh, told me he listened to Eminem when he was working. That's right out. in the morning yeah. uh, below my office. <laughs> and he'd come up and apologize. Sorry, Marty, because he always spoke as Bill. He never, once he got that accent, he but never... But you said that helped get him in character. Yeah, that was it. And also, I think the music and the working out in the morning kept him in a state of uh, uh, extraordinary rage. <laughs> <laughs> but had to be contained. <laughs> with his mustache. You know. And uh, great hatred, racial hatred. Absolutely. Just uh, calls himself the true American. Anybody else is a bastard foreign invader. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to keep that, that anger. He had to keep that anger going. And sometimes he'd be waiting for me all day, and he'd be pent up. I hate to go and tell him we're not shooting him today. What's going to kill me? Um, Leo was like a young colt running around. I'm going to do this. Okay, okay. We're pulling him back. <laughs> Cameron was waiting. Throw her in. You know, it was just. Uh, they were great. It was like really the family. It was really quite something. Are you ever going to write your autobiography in the never. way that Michael Powell did? Oh, no, It's a wonderful no. book. And you, uh, you no, nobody near as good a writer as he is. Oops. Yeah. He's a great writer. And the more I read now, I've been reading, I, I think I mentioned it, I started, I discovered reading. You, uh, said you, you said you'd read the Sam Fuller book. And I was going to yeah. ask you something about that. You wrote the introduction for it. Yes. And you talk about being taken to see I Shot Jesse James. Oh, my father took me, As yes. a seven-year-old. And, and this is one of the movies that made you realize that movies were interesting to you. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm wondering, who are the filmmakers who first made you realize that this could be what you did with your life, that this could be a career and a profession? Oh, um, uh, what first opened me to the, um, uh, first of all, being deposited in a movie theater when I was a kid from the age of three or four because of the asthma in 1946, 47. Uh, my parents. Did they just leave you there? No, no. They, they, my aunt would take me. Does my that father would take me. No, no. But still, there was nothing, nothing to do with me. Put me in a corner and you know, hope he breeds, doesn't get an attack. <laughs> I, you know. So <laughs> this was in Corona, Queens. You know, and uh, my aunt took me and my mother a few times and uh, my father a lot. My brother, and so there was nothing much to do with me except to take me there and. Uh, uh, basically, they, um, uh, I lived these dreams, these giant black and white nitrate silver content cinema dreams, and, and then this Technicolor that was amazing. My father, uh, at the time, was very quiet towards me, and I, I don't remember saying much, but sort of lived through the emotion of the films, in a way. And um, basically, uh, I didn't really know. I didn't know who did what behind the screen. Well, that's whatever. what I'm wondering yeah. is when you started to figure out. Well, I think when, I, when we moved back to Manhattan, we moved back to the Lower East Side, uh, back to the uh, 1949, 1950, when uh, uh, my mother and father had to move back to uh, the street they were born on, Elizabeth Street, and we were living with my grandparents. Um, I would then walk to the, uh, the movies, and there were all these kids, and we would all go together. And I began to understand a little of it. I, I really loved the classical films, you know, the John Ford films and the Howard Hawks pictures and that sort of thing, Hitchcock, of course. And so, and a lot of the B films, a lot of the B films. But I think what really happened was mid-50s to late-50s when I, um, I think when I saw Citizen Kane on television 
is when I began to realize, um, uh, because you can see the camera in that one. Now, there's a whole school of thought that says you shouldn't see the camera. You shouldn't see, the, it should be seamless. But uh, it also made me appreciate some of the seamless beauty of uh, William Myler and of Ford and Hawks, again, to see why is it different. But the Ford stuff is really important because of the family. The family, uh, the relationship of the family, always the warmth of the family, the, the, the conflict in the family. This was very important, uh, mainly with the Irish and the Irish immigrants. And so uh, between that, and I started to see these foreign films, because I saw the Italian films, the late 40s, early 50s, Paisan and Open City and that sort of thing. And I, I in my Italian documentary talk, that, that made a very uh, strong impression on me. And uh, so the 50s was a place where it was a time when America was changing. It was a, the breaking up of the, uh, the production code. Um, and I was very much aware of uh, foreign films, and I began to see uh, Swedish films, Ingmar Bergman, Smiles of a Summer Night, and uh, uh, particularly The Seventh Seal, and, uh, which is very strong for me. And then around the same time, I saw Shadows, Cassavetes, and I realized uh, the emotion of that film was mm -hmm. so strong, and the sense of uh, reality was so strong in it, or reality is a lousy word, but uh, it was genuine, it was genuine, it was real. Um, I really didn't, I didn't think there were actors. It was, it was like the camera was in somebody's apartment, somebody's house. And it was a whole different way of life, too. It had more with Bohemians. I had no idea that I was working working class, lower class, uh, working class Italian-American family. But I knew that you could, uh, the emotions there. And we saw that the camera could move, or the camera could be lighter at that time. You can actually shoot in the streets. You can shoot in people's apartments. And at the same time, be influenced, and, uh, be influenced or at least appreciate the grammar of film uh, from Orson Welles on, from 41 on. Uh, learning, of course, the grammar earlier, but still combining the two somehow. So by 1958, 59, I tried to do some films. I, if I, actually, when I, was, when I was younger, I would do storyboards, but I didn't know there were storyboards. They were, they were panels, and it was, uh, there was a, a feeling of expressing, wanting to express myself in pictures. Um, there were panels, uh, little but was panels. There, was there anybody you would ever look to who was doing as many different kinds of things as you wound up doing? You're almost like a... Um, you know, a, a curator and an, an executive and a producer and a writer and a director, uh, really, and, and you've been involved in such a tremendously wide range of things. Um, I don't think there really is anybody else that you can point back to who, who took that active a role. I'm just wondering if, if anyone comes to your mind. No, I, I, uh, I offhanded, no, really, I think at the time in Hollywood, they really weren't thinking that much of, uh, of, uh, of becoming a tradition. If anything, the tradition was for the marketplace and uh, MGM, the quality of tradition, David O'Sells and the quality of tradition, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But about, I mean, the Academy when it was formed in 1927, I think, I mean, the first thing they should have done, they're really thinking that way, was to at least get a print of every film that was nominated for anything. Mm -hmm. Just get a print and put it away. You know, and you wind up with a situation like this movie, Broadway Melody in 1929 or something, won the best picture of the year. It's only a black and white dupe that's left. Mm -hmm. It was in Technicolor. You know, but nobody was thinking that way. And I think in the 50s, when, when we began to see, in the late 50s, began to see the end of uh, the great masters in Hollywood, their last films, and the Europe, Europe taking over in Asia, um, we became more, I guess it was just a, a see, they were such dreams to us, we thought they'd always exist. And by the mid-60s to late 60s to early 70s, really, is when we realized that, you know, we saw that film back 25 years ago. Well, let's get a print of it. There's no print available. Mm. You know, we wanted to learn from it. There was no video at the time. And the best thing we'd do is maybe get a copy of the script, you know, and see some stills. But that was about it. And so it was really a process in the 70s where we all became aware of, uh, of this need for knowledge. And it was just thrown away because it was a marketplace. It wasn't needed anymore. 
just get rid of it. If you've made its money, maybe it goes to TV, the hell with it, get it out of here. You don't need to print. The print, whenever I asked for a certain print, certain, particularly the leopard, for example, I was told it was too big, to t it took up too much room. It's too many reels. So that was, that's the, that's the uh, mentality that uh, myself and, and Schrader and, uh, remember Spielberg too, uh, getting very, very uh, crazy about it. And, and up to the mid-70s where we began to realize uh, it became like a situation where they've got a brand new print of Peeping Tom, you know. There was only one guy in L.A. who had it. You know, that's we, we have to screen it every, every time we can get. But in any event, it was, uh, I don't really, I, I, can't, I can't really think back as to anyone. I keep thinking of the great archivists and, uh, uh, you know, Henri Langlois in France and... Uh, uh, you want great directors too. No, I, but the, you know, um, the, the, I don't think it ever came together that way. Looking back now, which which do you feel quite content about in terms of what you were trying to achieve, and which one is the disappointment to you, the most disappointing? You didn't get what you wanted. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I could have used a couple of more days on Mean Streets. That's for certain. That's for certain. It was 26 days. I could have used a few more days, but and a certain kind of location because we have to split the locations. And so there's certain compromises, but it really didn't matter. I think the spirit of the Do you the watch city, your own work? No, no, mm. rarely. Mm. Uh, and uh, if it has a good piece of music in it, I'll watch it, mm. just for the music. Or some the actors scene sometimes, mm. you know. Um, but um, I think Raging Bull's pretty, I think we got pretty much everything we thought we wanted anyway in that. Um, but I've been pretty lucky, Taxi Driver. Fort, we fought like mad, but we got everything we wanted. Um, I think probably New York, New York, as I always kind of think of New York, New York as sort of an experiment, which uh, uh, if it had been, uh, if I had prepared a different way, I think I would have gotten what I wanted, but it's not the fault of the film. Uh, I think the film, if you see it now, stands on its own, it's all right, whether you like it or not, that's what it is. And like I said, oh, that should have been, it, it was, I was trying something that had, that I had to learn, I had to go through on that to, to it's too come bad up it the other side. Have a, too bad it didn't have a good song. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, it's not an omen. What can I tell you? It's the omen. It's just that's it, man. Satanus, you know. Um, and the, I think the one that I really felt that was still the hardest shoot of all that we've done was Last Temptation of Christ. That was the hardest shoot. We just, Joe Reedy, my AD, and myself, we groveling in the sand. <laughs> we were like crawling. It was literally the last 24 days of shooting. Uh, we just shot every day. We just shot. It's raining. No, it's not raining. Okay, what scene could we shoot? I mean, it came down to that. You know, actors had to leave. Uh, the crew was leaving. There were a lot of uh, some Italian guys uh, on, on the uh, on the uh, sound crew. It was like three days before Christmas, and we had gone over, and I saw the sound crew leaving, and I said, and they're going, "Ciao, Martino, buon Natale!" <laughs> and I said, I said to my producer, "I said, where are they going?" I go, "Hey, goodbye." I said, "Goodbye." I said, "Where are they going?" I said, it's the sound crew. I said, "Where they?" I said, "Go back to Rome. It's Christmas." I said, uh, "Who's going to do the sound?" Well, the Moroccan guys. No, they, they, you know. So the kids, and we finished with them. But I mean, that was okay. The sound was fine. It was a matter of. Um, it was a matter of uh, an interesting thing. I don't think I'd ever be satisfied with the scale of the picture. In other words, at first I thought it had to be a certain kind of scale. Then I was sort of thinking maybe a bigger scale to, to try to um, try to hint at the American biblical epics and, and, the, and the Italian ones. But then I realized it had to be more like uh, on the level of an Olmi or, or the style of a Pasolini. But, but the, he had more than style going for himself. He had that poetry in a way. Uh, as Dante Freddi said, he's like a poet with a camera. When, when, he, when he made his films, Pasolini. But um, there was no doubt that that was the best way to go. Still, even under those conditions, I would have liked about two more weeks shooting there to get certain things. I didn't have enough extras. I didn't, uh, that kind of thing. It's a purely a, a technical thing. And also, I think we opened up the script to certain questions which are almost unanswerable. And I tried to have scenes where they were kind of answered. Although, 
And so in a way, I, I, it's, it's one I, I think, and I always felt kind of healthy about it too. I said, well, we never finish it. In fact, the end um, goes off into edge fog. And on the crucifixion when he says, it is consummated, um, edge fog, the, the film starts to go. And that happened, that happened on the take that, uh, that I liked, that by accident we were rushing so much that they, when they took the roll down, somebody just by accident happened to expose it just a bit. And it would be on the take that I wanted. And I said, well, that's great, though. That becomes, and the whole film goes into edge fog, and that leave it. That's the resurrection. <laughs> that becomes the resurrection, you know? So that was it. But um, that's the kind of, um, the kind, I think, last temptation, yeah. Um, probably the most famous line in any film you've done was an improvisation. You, yeah. you talking to me. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't come up with that line, though. The actor did, so. But are I, there yeah. other, well, I, I want you to explain, first oh. of all, how that happened, but then, and then ask if there are other ones that you like as, as much as that. Yeah, I mean, he, um, at the, that was the last two or three days of shooting, and uh, we were uh, like four days over schedule for a film like that was really bad. And uh, we were being rushed, and I knew that in the script it says he, he practices in front of the mirror, and I felt the that. The script uh, is upstairs, too. Yeah, and it's in that section. And uh, I said, though, he should speak in front of me, he should say something. We were thinking about it and thinking about it. I said, I don't know, let's just start shooting it. So what do you, what do you think it should do? This is just something part of a process. Sometimes I say the things that it shouldn't be, so we might find mm -hmm. out that it could be only because this territory was taken so beautifully by someone else that you can't do it, which is uh, uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye as Marlon Brando looking at himself in the mirror. Did you see that? He's talking to himself, said, you look really good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It was wild. I thought it was great. I said, we're not going there. So, it, okay, yeah, no, we know that. Okay, so we're going to go, oh, okay, but it's about, it's about practicing the guns. It's about, it's about, you know, that business, the gun coming out. It's about being tough and about being caught. And almost like a child's fantasy, really. And, uh, and we, we had this, these rooms up in uh, Columbus Avenue. Uh, the, the buildings were being torn down, 89th Street in Columbus. And we used it as a little studio, and that was his, his apartment. And you could hear the people, the drummers outside across the way in the Latin club. They were drumming outside. It was the summertime. And uh, the cars outside and that sort of thing. And I was just down on the floor in front of him. He, they were shooting, and I kept, he, he started to do that. I said, okay, keep going, keep going, and just kept improvising it and going, repeating it and repeating it until he got into a, into a, a business of, oh, I'm the only one here. Mm -hmm. you know, he must be talking to me. In the meantime, our wonderful AD, who was a great guy, trying to save us, was banging on the door between takes. You gotta go, you're killing me. We're gonna be, you know, we're gonna have another five days over. No, no, please, this is really good. Let us, you know. Uh, and uh, he listened to us, and that was great, you know. Do you have another favorite of those of that? I didn't know about that one. Um, um, well, I think the one I like, uh, I like a lot, I like a lot is uh, what Joe Pesci did in, uh, and Ray Liotta did in Goodfellas, um, where, where he's making a joke, and, and Ray says that he's really funny. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> you know, am I a clown here yeah. <laughs> to amuse you? And then, but what happened there was that um, Nick Pelleggi and I had structured the script and, uh, very, very clearly, very, very clearly and very, very strong, very strong structure. And um, in that sequence, on, in the script, they introduced all these guys, Jimmy two times, and all these guys at the bar um, with the voiceover. And, and so anything, you could actually have another thing about how they lived and what they did easily could fit in there. And so when I talked to Joe Pesci, to have him do that part. He was a little reluctant, but he's, uh, he went up to that uh, apartment and he said, I just want to tell you about something, though. Uh, see if this would work for it. And he acted out this scene for me, which actually had happened to him from his own neighborhood where he hung out and, and uh, grew up in the streets. And this mm -hmm. actually, line by line, moment by moment, had happened to him. And I said, perfect. I said, I have the perfect mm -hmm. place for it. I know I could go in this right mm -hmm. here. 
And so then we went into rehearsal, on, uh, and in the rehearsal we did it about four, five, six, seven times on audio tape, and then I took all the transcripts and then made it into a scene from the transcripts. You know, and then they improvised more, and you improvised more mm. from there. You know. But uh, I always liked to watch the rhythm of that. Do you have a favorite performance in, that's in hard. your work? I know yeah, it's that's hard. hard because they were all... But I could get you to do yeah, it. I was saying the other day, all these Academy Award nominated performances, I, I mean, you always make me, some people say, oh, uh, always best with men, you know? I said, wait a minute, there's only three men who were nominated for me and who won. It was Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Paul Newman. I said, the rest, nine other nominations were women. Nine. Mm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I couldn't go. I couldn't afford it. But they called me. Amos Vogel told me about it later. Yeah, I didn't go. That's, that's always been my, my dilemma myself, and I'm, even in, in gangs, for example, or uh, Age of Innocence, or any of these pictures that I've made, really, how far can we deal with the box office and what the box office demands are? Because they are giving you a lot of money, which means you're, you're responsible for it, and you're obligated to do certain things. Uh, can you tell the same story, or can you find yourself like a kind of personal, uh, kind of personal uh, uh, way in to these stories and make your own personal statement? which means can you feel strongly passionate enough about something that can be through the nature of the way it's, way it's made, uh, the look of it, particularly the casting, be bankable at the, at the, at the box office. That's a big, I, I don't think, especially in the culture the way it is now, I don't think that's going to be getting any easier. It's only going to get harder. And it's going to get harder, I think. And I think younger people, if you, you know, there's, there's a lot of wonderful role models you can take who are making independent cinema and uh, not dealing with that, uh, the mass box office, you know. But it would be nice to see once again, uh, and I think some are coming around, uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, there's so many of these younger guys, men and women working, that seem to be crossing over into, um, into marketable cinema, uh, which I mean bigger budgets. What has I mean to happen budgets. to Gangs of New York for it to be marketable? You know, I don't know. I never understood enough about Good. the money. I just know that uh, this was a tough one to make. We all made sacrifices. I put more, I lost my salary in the picture for the first time in my life, and you know, uh, and so you know, I believed in it that way, and I was like a. It's a lot of it already sold overseas and oh sold. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, that. in fact, one of the one of the, the, the release dates are more important. We have to make certain technical things like a video transfer and everything uh, much sooner than we normally mm. would because of the, the release dates. But um, no, I think it's important. I th and I think it's very. I get I get I get upset when I see too much of the money going into a certain kind of film, which just uh, plays for two days and then goes on to DVD, and that's it, and it's like a commodity thrown away you know uh, there is that element though of film and that's what I talked about the first 50 or 60 years in Hollywood where they didn't really save the films because it had made it it had its, it had its history and went through. is there something kind of awful about the fact that Rocky IV will live forever and um, yeah and, uh, and the things you're talking about yeah are just, that, that's right are absolutely well it's just not. it's one of those things now even if you try to save everything now you may save a tenth you know and that's what we're trying to do but the, there's some kids that the, I, I saw this film Donnie Darko mm -hmm. interesting film uh, I saw it on DVD uh, young guy uh, and I found it really interesting because it was more it, it had it had a Hollywood look but it had a personal kind of a personal story in a way and he's pretty young and might might be very interesting in terms do you of see a lot of films by young films now I'm trying try to, to. Mm -hmm. yeah I'm trying to now that I'm, I'm 
I've, in the past two months, have like finalized the cutting of this thing. I'm just trying mm -hmm. to look at stuff. I'm looking at a lot of Asian films, a lot of Asian films, Korean films, really interesting. For any particular purpose, or just that's what you like? To well, do? I like horror films yeah. for to relax. <laughs> well, the, 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 some of the horror films. Some there's a couple of Korean ones that are pretty interesting, and uh, uh, Japanese and uh, Chinese, and uh, not just horror films, but but as much as possible. But I have like uh, you know, a hundred DVD, just DVDs sitting on the floor, and it's between the youth of Maxim Gorky or a new, <laughs> a new Korean film. So it depends on the mood you're in, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think Steve was going to direct Cape Fear. I'm not sure if he was really going to direct it, but um, the story on that was that um, um, back when I was with Steve and we were all together in the 70s, he had always, uh, I remember him, you know, he'd, he'd tell me, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to do this film, Schindler's List, and here it is, here's the book. I mean, we were on a plane coming back from Cannes mm -hmm. where he held up the book to me. He said, this is it, this is the one I'm going <laughs> to do, it's going to be this, I'm going to do that with it. And he said, and one day I'm going to make a movie for you that I'm going to produce a film of yours and it's going to be the biggest hit money-wise that you've made. And I'm going to want to see your face when you see people lined up around the corner. I said, ah, <laughs> nonsense. And um, so years go by, and he's still working on Schindler's, Schindler's. And then at a certain point, I think when we did Last Temptation of Christ, 1988, 87, he seemed to drop it. And it came to me. And I thought I would try to do it and worked on it for a while. Steve Zalian. Um, I had just gone through Last Temptation. And I was very passionate about that. And I know you had to have the same passion for this subject matter, Schindler's, which... I, I liked it a lot, but having also gone through such uh, difficulty on the release of Last Temptation, um, and I also remembered Stephen's uh, passion for Schindler's. And so at, a, at the same time, he was talking to me about Cape Fear, and so was De Niro. And at that point, uh, I said, well, let's leave it. Let's, let's just switch it. Is each know. new film a kind of reaction against the one you've just done? I would before? hope to be, yeah. Certainly, Age of Innocence was against uh, Cape Fear, I think. Mm -hmm. came, yeah. And, um, but Cape Fear was interesting, very hard movie to make, Thriller, which was based on a, a real B-film, a great B-film. So you can't make it a B-film, but, so you update it in a way, but is it just an updating? I mean, what, what does the Thriller mean today? And that's why I'm interested in these. Were you afraid these, of the idea of remaking? Oh, yeah, I don't like remaking yeah. stuff. But that was interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Thompson film with the Mitchum and Peck and everybody was quite mm -hmm. interesting. It was very, very uh, clear piece. But in terms of that, yeah, no, I felt that he really had the passion for it and the best that he would go and take that journey and, and go with it. And I went, and, and Cape Fear, of course, was the picture that made the most money of any, any movie he had made. What do you fascination with the gangster is interesting. I, um, I got to tell you, when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s, I mean, I was part of a world that had that as an element. So it was the, it was, to me, it was the world. It was the world. There was that element involved with it. It was very, very much a real day-by-day -day, uh, working out of, of um, this society. You're right, I think you once said, if I can buy toothpaste for 19 cents, is it? They fell off a truck instead of buying it for 50 cents. Oh, yeah, cents. That, was, that was the thing. Hey, you know, they'd come around, sometimes my mother would ask, hey, what fell off the truck today? You know, you never know. Not that she's a thief, but you buy it. You're saying yellow sweaters. <laughs> hey, look at the guys got off the truck, you know, and you bring it around. Right? So you got to beat the system somehow. They were not educated. Um, and uh, a lot of the Sicilians, the Italian-Americans, were very, very 
suspicious about government and uh, church, particularly it's one of the reasons they ran away from Sicily, and uh, weren't certainly going to, you know, put themselves in the hands of a, of a, a, an American police force. I mean, really, you know, you'd understand the cultural issues there. They, they wouldn't trust it. Just basically stay with the family and everything else. And so, for the first or and into the second generation, I think. Uh, it was difficult to get them to, to understand about taking advantages of America, opportunity for, for education, which gives you power and makes you move, and that sort of thing. But in any event, um, uh, I, I don't know. I never thought the things that I put on film could have been put on film when I was growing up because it was, uh, it's how I saw it. And uh, the one thing, despite the fact that you had the majority of the people down there being hardworking, working-class families, killing themselves, they going up to the garment district, coming back, you know. Um, not not uh, underworld characters, but um, the majority uh, were really good, decent people. And, but the, the, it's that odd connection of, um, that odd uh, combination, I should say, of knowing people and liking them and then finding out later what they did. You know, knowing some people not liking them and finding out later what they did. <laughs> you know, so I never thought, because they never brought a camera into where I, where I grew up. You never were not allowed to bring a camera. The motion picture camera, forget it. That would be outrageous. And then who's that knocking? I was able to shoot a little bit. And in Mean Streets, very, very little. But my father had to talk to certain people and, you know, to make sure. But right after that, um, right around the time I had helped um, Dean Tuvalaris look for locations for Godfather One in my neighborhood. And it started to pay then, you see. They went into a couple of places in the Lower East Side. They paid. The, the olive oil factory we found. I mean, just I just took them to uh, St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, Cathedral. They shot the interior of the baptism of the Godfather One in there. And after that, the church had a little money, and they, they fixed it up and that sort of thing. So it started to mm -hmm. become, hey, we could be friendly to the outside world. They can let us in. So then that whole period, I think the Godfather changed that to a certain extent. But the Godfather deals with a very patrician um, level of the un underworld in a way. But could um, you have ever imagined this turning into America's favorite television character? No, no. No, that I can't imagine. That I can't imagine. I mean, have you ever uh, watched it? No, not really. I saw one show a long time ago. I like the actors are good and everything. I know some of the actors are, I've worked with are really great, but I, I just don't. Uh, I know um, a number of friends of mine are real fans of it. I just don't like. Um, it's. Uh, I know it. Yeah. In a way, so <laughs> it becomes something else. But, but it, yeah, and, and also that period, by the way, the films I made, Mean Streets, and and. Uh, Goodfellas, and even elements of Raging Bull, because the whole thing is not about the underworld. Um, they're of a time and place, 40s and 50s, early 60s. I mean, Mean Streets is really about 1960 to 63. I shot in the 70s, but it really is earlier. They're like the, the, the girl groups, Phil Spector, yeah. So, you, you know, it really was that sound right before the Beatles hit, right before. And so, uh, I don't think that, that that way of life doesn't exist anymore anywhere. And I think The Sopranos is interesting because it's modern, isn't it? It's a modern thing. New Jersey and got long hair and stuff. I, we don't, you know, <laughs> it was a different thing. I got, you know, I'm used to the sort of camel hair coats and, you know, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a very different. I, I don't think I could ever even do one about, about that world now, and what it's become. Is there any any kind of film that you wish you could make but you just don't? You have ventured outside of the gangster thing a lot of different times, but you always you often come back to it as you have now. And yeah. I wonder if there's anything you think of as just being too far away from that. I'd like to make. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated by the ancient world. I'd like to make a film from the point of view of pre-Christian thought and religion, mm -hmm. like Apuleius is the Golden Ass. Would be great. 
Apuleius was a very religious book. He was a priest of Isis. So I think by you know, reading the classics mm -hmm. or trying to read, I wish I had had a classic education. I didn't have a classic education, but I try to get through it. And I think the interesting thing is that uh, trying to perceive, trying to see the world apart from, uh, not through the uh, lens, so to speak, of uh, Judeo-Christian thought, religion. Uh, not to put that aside, but I want to see what else links us as human beings and who we are, you know. We have time we really for are. a couple more questions, and then Marty really does have to go back to work. Yes, up there. The original cut. Is it not on yeah, I, um, that was a rough cut. That was the first screening. It's like the stuff you show to your friends and they yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, you, you, it's ridiculous. Uh, this one, it turns out everybody liked it. A lot mm -hmm. of people liked it. De Palma liked it, and Sam Fuller was there. He liked it. But um, that was the first cut. We just put it all together. It was four hours and 20 minutes and just went on and on and on. And I was, oh, that's great. We can maybe move this around. And that's basically it. It's like people saying, oh, you know, uh, Gangs of New York is the three. No, the first cut was three, some three and a half or whatever. That's the first cut. And then it's certain films like a piece of sculpture. You go in and bang, you know, keep chipping away at it. And it comes down to size, hopefully. In the case of Gangs, it's two hours and 40 minutes without credits. You know, and all the credits at the end anyway, so. It's two hours 40 of story, so. <laughs> and um, New York, New York, you know what it was? You're absolutely right in a sense because that was, it was a special day. Something happened there. It was kind of interesting. At that screening, it was very special. But there's no doubt the picture needed tons of work. But the fact that it was lost, something happened there. There were black and white dupes that were gone, and we could never, just, just to have as a reference, we would have liked that. That's have you all. seen it, or have you just heard of it? Yeah, but it was quite quite indulgent. I mean, it's four and a half hour. I mean, you know, it's all your all your rushes, don't they? just the heads and tails cut off, and try, you know, basically intercutting stuff and trying to see where the hell the story is, you know, because we're experimenting and improvising a great deal. Yes. Um, um, it was again a Robert De Niro um, a role that he really wanted to play, and he gave me that script back when I was doing Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, along with the book on Raging Bull. And both of them, I wasn't that interested. Raging Bull, I thought, was a little bit interested. I'm not a sports enthusiast, so I didn't quite understand the, the boxing. As a sport, didn't understand it. And so, because <laughs> it's different in the film, in a way, what we, how, I found what, how I found my way through was a different thing altogether, not sports at all. But um, no, King of Comedy, I didn't quite get when I first read it, the wonderful uh, Paul Zimmerman script. And then it went off for a while. I think um, a number of people were going to do it. I think uh, Milos Forman was involved, Mike Cimino was involved. And then, after Raging Bull was finished, uh, uh, Bob just presented it to me again. He said, I think you'd really be good for this. And it took about those 10 years or eight years to understand a little more about what the cult of celebrity was about. You said that you felt more like Rupert Popkin yeah. the the, when, you, yeah. the, when you made the film, and, the, and now, in a way, you're more like the Jerry Lewis character. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah. But that's the thing. That was, that's yeah. what I saw, both, both yeah. sides. And I said, if anything, you'd probably go the other way. But yeah. this guy I know who loved late-night talk shows, who loved uh, Steve Allen, and uh, um, uh, Ernie Kovacs, who understood early television, which was so exciting. Uh, the, the, your show shows all the sort of thing, the New York comedy, in a way, brilliant comedy. Uh, and so um, I sort of found my way in it later. And Bob said, let's do it. We could do it quickly in New York, shoot it fast, and that sort of stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, you're right. Let's get back to work. And I was kind of weakened after um, Raging Bull. I had had walking pneumonia. I was a complete wreck. And anyway, but I got myself back together and went in to start shooting. And I realized it was really difficult. It was, it was really difficult because it was, a, to say the least, a comedy of manners, which meant it was all about body positions, uh, uh, body language, uh, and framing. Uh, uh, 
medium shots, uh, hardly any camera movement. And that was another thing, too. I sort of reacted against it in the late 70s. Throughout the whole 70s, every, every other film, and they, they are beautiful, though, some of the great films that were made then. But every time critics would say, oh, it's the most beautiful thing ever made. You could take a frame of this and put it on a wall. I said, enough. <laughs> let's just make a picture. Let's go back to 1903. <laughs> let's go back to Edwin S. Porter. I said, let's take it and just mm -hmm. medium shot, medium. Like, and does the camera move? Or does the person, what is that person doing? And it, this was a perfect material for these people to be locked in these frames together, I say. And for Rupert to be invading Jerry Lewis's frame, you know? And I, but it was, it was like, I, I felt like I had my hands tied. It was a real, you know, I, I felt uh, ridiculously that if you aren't flying around with the camera, at that point in time, I was thinking, well, then you're not doing your job. And I said, no, wait a minute, no, it has to mean something. <laughs> Goodfellas, uh, you could say it's narrative, it's a story, Goodfellas, but it's not the narrative, uh, a normal narrative from beginning, middle to end. I, I, it basically relies heavily on voiceover and sort of like a stand-up comedy routine in a way. And with that, it's a device in which visually you can go anywhere. Because you, yeah, you could do, so you could do anything you want. But uh, I find uh, Gangs harder because it was a straight narrative, straight story with, which begins at a certain point, has a middle, it has an end, to a certain extent. Maybe not, I'm not interested in a lot of plot, but it has a story, a very straight narrative. And I find that that, um, you know, with films that seem deceptively, films that seem simple with story, uh, I must say, as you get to see more and more films, and you try to, and you try to make more and more films, you, you get a, gain a, a more of a very, very strong respect for clarity of storytelling with the camera and clarity of script. Steven Spielberg once camera. said about you, he has never heard of logic. Oh yeah, probably right. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. I tried, yeah. Uh, yeah, but. Final question. Yes. Yeah. 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 stops. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Actually, uh, as a device from the outset, I always liked voiceover in film. I liked it when I saw films narrated by Sir Cedric Hardwick, let's say the, the Portrait of Dorian Gray or War of the Worlds, that early one in the early 50s. And then the idea was to, you know, make sound pictures. So sound is just as important to me as, as the image. And uh, um, to start uh, pushing the envelope with the sound and pushing the envelope with the voiceover and overdo it, in a sense, in casino, uh, have it become a kind of drug-fueled, uh, uh, argument on the soundtrack, in a way, which can only be silenced with a bat across the head. What, happen, what happens to Joe? You see, in a way, in that world, I'm talking about. And so uh, that, and uh, particularly then in Age of Innocence too, the, the 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 idea of taking sections from the book and just just reading, literally not just reading it, but that was all very very well structured in the script. In some cases, I've done it. I've done it uh, at first. I didn't want to use it, and we went back and said, no, this is the best way to use it because there's so much history here. There's so much of that, but. That's, that's pretty much just helping the audience along to a certain extent. But in the cases I'm talking about, uh, um, uh, it was devised uh, way in advance and as a, as a technique. Are there people in this audience who are interested in making films themselves? Oh, what's, my God. What's the best advice anybody ever gave you? Let's close well, with that. The thing I've always found is um, 
And like we talked about certain projects that go on for years and everything, it's a certain tenacity. You just keep going, no matter what anybody tells you. Whatever they write about you or your parents, so you just keep, you've got to keep going. You keep going and hanging on and, and um, you'll find it yourself. You'll find out yourself if you, you want to do it or not. You'll be in the middle of, I mean, that's what I always said about Cassavetes and Shadows, you know, he made it look like we can all shoot ourselves. We could just take cameras and shoot. And that, it got you to the point where you get there and you're ready to go and you've planned everything out and you're looking through the lens and you realize, I must be insane. What have I, <laughs> what have I got? They, they're looking at me for, okay, I know exactly what to do. Let's go. But, um, you know, I mean, it gets you to that point because some people can do once or twice or three times and that, that may be it. It just takes too much, uh, too much concentration. I should say, really, no, dedication. And it, it's a dangerous thing because it's, uh, when I said I've got gangs all these years, like a disease. No matter what happened, I had to go and follow this, this picture whatever's going to happen to it. I just, you know, honey, everything. I just went. Well, good things are going to happen to I hope. So. Thank you. Congratulations and happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.